Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I'm about as American as chicken korma, apple pie, and chai, but even after 40 years, I'm still told to go back. Go back to where you came from. It's an insult that, unfortunately, many of us have heard in our lives. For political commentator Wajahat Ali, it's also the title of his new book, which traces his childhood in Fremont, his activism as a UC Berkeley student after 9-11, and the challenges he's faced as a son, a father, and a writer. It chronicles him almost dying from a heart condition, his young daughter getting cancer, and other family tragedies. But the book is funny. I think humor is important for us to simply have catharsis, to have joy, right? For people of color to have joy. And right now, we could all use a little joy, right? I'm Sasha Koka. It's the California Report magazine. And today I'm going to chat with Wajahat about why he's decided to actively invest in joy. You always wanted to be a storyteller, and you write about that in this book. And of course, for those of us who have Desi immigrant parents, that's not exactly their dream for us. Never. No, that's never the dream. Uh, The dream is what I call the Holy Trinity, the checklist of success. And in the book, uh, the chapter three on this path towards you becoming American, uh, I offer the helpful recommendation, do something useful. And if with your permission, may I read a section of the book? Yes, please. As far as I can remember, I always wanted to be a storyteller. However, I was the only son of Pakistani immigrants. And in our community, the occupations consisted of the Holy Trinity. To refresh your memory, they are the following. Number one, the doctor. Number two, the engineer. Number three, the businessman who somehow makes enough money to buy a two-story house, a nice car, marry a nice wife, produce 2.1 good children, and then send them to a good school. The only other possible occupation was number four failure. This is the immigrant checklist of success. Successfully accomplish and check off the boxes, then smile and nod in front of the community gatherings, and you will have accomplished the American dream. Early on in my writing career, several uncles and aunties in my community used to ask me to my face, Beta, why don't you do something useful? Yeah, it's a question those of us who've gone into storytelling or or basically anything that's not being a doctor or an engineer get regularly. I think one of the issues is, you know, growing up, we didn't see representation of storytellers or even of characters in stories that reflect our community. I remember for me, it was basically Apu on The Simpsons, and that was it. One of the things I love about your book is that 
you know, you take a deep dive into looking at the representation of South Asians and Muslims in American television and film. Growing up uh, as a child of the 80s and 90s, I inhaled American pop culture. And when you're growing up, you know, you don't sit there and go, I am a Muslim Pakistani son of immigrants. You're like, I'm Mujahid. I'm just a kid and I'm an American. And and you internalize uh, Sasha being the other. You see movies where you are either the sidekick, the villain, or you're completely invisible. So the movies that I used to see were like these action movies where Chuck Norris used to go to like these Middle Eastern countries and just blow up swords of brown people all the time and he was the hero and you're rooting for him. I used to like, I still love Back to the Future, a brilliant movie, but randomly in the movie, which was released in 1985, there's like this really archaic, outdated, like Libyan stereotype. People forget that Libyan terrorists just randomly killed Doc Brown, right? You're like, okay, that's odd. And and you don't realize until later that you revisit some of these movies and TV shows that you loved. Holy crap. That was racist as F. Wow. I internalize these images and these narratives, but then you don't realize, oh, the joke's on me. I'm the bad guy. And and what does that do to your sense of self-worth, your self-esteem, your image of beauty? Your you, When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you love yourself or do you hate yourself? Are you taught to hate the color of your skin, the shape of your nose, your ethnic last name? So much of this book is about you coming into self-love, you know, a kid who contended with racism and Islamophobia and, as you say, wearing husky pants, you know, being left-handed. I love it where you write about white supremacy. Um, And I just wonder, you know, how did that journey to self-love happen for you? And how was humor part of that equation? I think for me, growing up as this awkward Desi Muslim kid who was left-handed and husky pants and shy and sick. You know, I I don't think anyone grows up and says, I want to be the other. Yay. (laughs) I want to be the guy who's a sidekick. No, you don't want to be Robin. You want to be Batman. You don't want to be invisible. You want to have a starring role. But I realized early on that I enjoyed telling stories. And there's there's a a chapter in the book, which I hope resonates with a lot of people and shows the importance of mentors. A fifth grade teacher, Miss Peterson, made us do a one-page story, creative story. And I ended up writing a 10-page story as a 10-year-old. And she gave me an A++++. And then she made me recite that story, Sasha, in front of my homeroom, the same homeroom that used to bully me. And I was so terrified. I was sweating profusely. I begged her not to, but she made me. And that same homeroom for 10 minutes, they were wrapped with attention. I had them. They laughed at all the right parts. And at the end, they gave me an applause. And right then I discovered kind of a superpower. I'm like, wow, I might be able to tell a story. And that spark gave me the confidence through time to eventually, you know, start speaking more. And then in high school, I did improv comedy and then college, I did sketch comedy. And so with humor in particular, I have realized I've used it as a weapon to fight back against oppressors and bullies. I have used it um, almost as a means of looking at the absurdity of life. Some people cry, I laugh. I think humor is important for us to simply have catharsis, to have joy, right? For people of color to have joy. Some of the most profound stuff I think in this book for me is not necessarily when you're speaking to white folks, but when you're actually dissecting South Asian identity and our relationship to whiteness. Can you read us a passage about that? Sure. Uh, Once upon a time when we thought we were white and moderate. Many Muslims from my father's generation who came to this country after the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act 
chaste whiteness, which was part and parcel of the American dream. They will deny it if you ask them, because they will say they came here just to make a better life for themselves and their families. In fact, I'll bet all my limited money they will be unable to articulate or even define whiteness. But whiteness they chased nonetheless, even though they knew they would never fully grasp it or be accepted in its privileged country clubs, or walk through its gilded doors to executive boardrooms, or be elected to its political positions, or read its script as the protagonists of a TV drama, or receive its blessings when they asked for Susie's hand in marriage. Still, it was enough to be adjacent to its acceptance, to be asymptotic to its power, to retreat into its warm, protective embrace, preferably in a safe, good, gated suburban community. They were like Icarus, who thought their wings made of money, wax, and upward social mobility would let them escape their brownness, their musliminess, their accented English, their multisyllabic names, their turmeric-infused fingernails. They flew with their eyes arrogantly above the ground, oblivious to the majority of Americans, their natural allies, black, brown, immigrant, low-income workers, the poor, who toiled below. They kept soaring, thanks to their exceptionalism, hard work, luck, grit, Chismet and God's divine favor, or so they told themselves. If only the blacks and the Mexicans and the other poor, lazy people pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, stopped asking for handouts, and followed their checklist, they too could fly in the clouds. They too could bask in the beauty of the American dream. Well, a major turning point for you in your life was 9-11, which happened while you were attending UC Berkeley. And, you know, I was also there as a journalism grad student at the time. And some of the first stories I covered were about South Asian activism after 9-11. I wonder if you could just talk about how that moment changed you. 9-11 happened. And overnight, we became us and them. Overnight, we became citizens and suspects. Overnight, we became terrorists. The American story had a remake and tag, Muslims were it, and we were the villains. Not just Muslims, but those who looked Muslimy. And so me as a 20-year-old undeclared senior at UC Berkeley trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, all of a sudden, the entire target was on our back. And this country went mad after 9-11. People, this country went so crazy, we renamed French fries as Freedom Fries. <laughs> this country went so nuts that they, they canceled Susan Sontag. They canceled the Dixie Chicks, who were like the whitest women on earth. So what do you think they were doing to Muslims? They were surveilling us. They were entrapping us. They went after our, our organizations. They went after our charities. And what is the type of effect that has on Muslims? The chilling effect, fear. There were hate crimes against Muslim women. So this was all happening as I was a student at UC Berkeley. And overnight, I became this accidental activist and this representative of this thing called Islam and Muslims. And I learned then that we would have to be something called the moderate Muslim in order to be accepted by America. And that meant condemning violent acts done by people we've never met. And even if we condemned violent acts, and no matter how nice and shiny we were, Sasha, we were still seen as suspects. And you write about how, you know, 20 years on after 9-11, there's still this kind of Muslim prayer that you and your friends came up with. Can you read us a little bit about that? We, we, we discovered what we called the Muslim prayer, Sasha, but it's actually the minority prayer. And it's like what all people of color pray anytime we hear of a terrorist attack. And so I write in the book, 20 years later, my Muslim friends still recite the Muslim prayer. Whenever there is news of a terror attack, shooting, violence, or cringeworthy scandal that could debase entire communities, we pray the culprit is a white dude. 
Whether it's the 1993 World Trade Center attack, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, or the 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, we all pray. It's not because we wish ill will on whites. Remember, we love whites. Some of our best friends are whites. Some of us still want to be white. Rather, it's a realization that whenever the culprit is a white man or a white woman, America will demonize only that specific individual. Their communities will not be tarred and feathered, and their entire race, ethnicity, and tribe will not be asked to apologize for someone else's criminal acts. The whites will not have to spend the week defending their moderation or loyalty in front of the news cameras, a Senate committee, or a jury of their peers. They can just amble on with their lives and eat mashed potatoes and listen to Steely Dan. You know, I don't think that feeling of, you know, not being American enough ever goes away for many of us who are kids of immigrants. Mm. Now that you're a parent, what do you say to your own kids about being American and about staying connected with their roots and loving themselves? It's, it's a very good question. And my wife and I have both been very intentional about it. You know, when Kamala Harris uh, and, and Joe Biden won and you remember that Kamala Harris came and gave a speech. I made my kids sit and watch. And I said, listen, look at this. This is Kamala Harris. She's the vice president. She's number two in charge. She's South Asian like mm -hmm. you, Nunu. Look at her skin color. Her name's Kamala. Her mama's Daisy like mama's Daisy. And, and like, you know, Nunu, my Nuseba was like four at the time. And Ibrahim was, I think, six. And they're like, yeah, yeah, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden. And I said, just look at this. In America, you too can dream. Inshallah, maybe one day you could be vice president. Why not you? There's beauty in different colors and shapes. We live in a diverse community. And you just happen to be brown and your brown skin is beautiful and your last name is beautiful and your, your names have meaning. And we're Muslim. Other people drink, we don't. We believe in Allah. Other people celebrate Christmas, we don't, right? So we've been trying very deliberately to do this, Sasha. But I remember despite all our efforts to protect against the whiteness, despite all our efforts to give them black and brown dolls and, and, and every time there's Cinderella and Snow White to also have Moana, my daughter looks in the mirror and says, Baba, I want light skin. Light skin tone is better. I want to be fair. And there was just a punch in the gut. No way I'm, this is happening to my kids. So I spent the next month all hands on deck, DEFCON 3. And me, my wife, I told my friends on WhatsApp, I told my parents, I said, anytime you see Nuseba or you Zoom, just say like, oh, look how beautiful you look. Oh, you're brown skin. Oh, you're wonderful. And a month and a half later, she looked at herself in the mirror and she goes, Baba, I love my brown skin. I really do. Mm. And I was like, oh, thank God. But we know that this is a lifelong effort. It goes back to the point, even though she's immersed in this household of love and support, it still goes through, Sasha. It still goes through and they internalize it at such a young age. Mm, yeah, it's osmosis. It's all around us. Well, speaking of Nuseba, you know, your family has had to deal with so much and, and you chronicle in this book, you know, not only your own health problems, but your young daughter getting a diagnosis of cancer, which thankfully, you know, she was able to survive. Yet, you know, you talk a lot about the importance of just being determined to face life with joy and investing in joy no matter what comes. How do you do that? How do you tap into the reserves and the resilience to find that? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I have made the decision in life to actively invest in joy. And you have to actively invest in it like exercise. You have to make the intention and then you have to develop the discipline. Because for so many of us, uh, you know, we don't get joy. We don't get to laugh. Instead, the narrative that we were taught, right, Sasha, was suffer, but suffer well. Suffer, 
but suffer silently. And, and I feel like life is better with less suffering and more joy. And so my wife and I, when, when Nuseba was diagnosed with cancer, we could have easily gone to this mental quicksand of why us? Why us? Why God? And that you'll never receive an answer to that, Sasha. And that's like a waswasa, what we say, a whisper that eats away and destroys you. But instead we said, this is life. Life happens. There's good and there's bad. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It's how we choose to confront it. And I remember I used to sit there at night after my kids went to sleep during my daughter's stage four cancer, where we didn't know if she'd survive. And I used to imagine every narrative and scenario. I imagined burying her. I imagined the grandparents, you know, calling them saying she died because I had to prepare myself as the father. But then I made the choice of imagining her alive and healthy, wearing her Encanto Isabella dress that we had to get her, full of life. And I chose to invest in that story. And, and, and what I'll say, and it's kind of the theme of the book, is even though it feels like you're on the edge of the cliff and the cliff is falling, through the stories I give about Americans, through the personal stories that I share, you know, you never know sometimes. The page turns and brings with it a plot twist. And it leads to a better story. And I should be dead. Literally, I should be dead. But here I am talking to you, still alive. My daughter's still alive. So how can I not invest in hope? Well, I'm glad you did, and I'm glad that you've brought us these stories and your humor and your vulnerability. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Wajahat Ali's new book is called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. Finally, today, a tribute from a granddaughter to her beloved grandfather who died from COVID. If you've been tuning into our show over the last year, you might have heard our series of remembrances of people we've lost to the virus. And now we've hit a grim milestone. More than 80,000 Californians have died. Today, we're going to hear from the family of a farm worker who lived in Madera in the San Joaquin Valley. His granddaughter, Madi Bolaños, is a radio reporter with KVPR, the local NPR station in Fresno. My grandpa's name was Tomas Reyes Soto, but we all called him Papi Tomas. He died in December 2020, a week before his 69th birthday. And since his death, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about his legacy and what his decisions meant for me and my future. I just feel this extreme sense of gratitude. My grandpa taught me the value of hard work, to have pride in my work, and that nothing was out of my reach. My grandpa was born in Pueblo Nuevo, Durango, Mexico in 1951, and he started working at a very young age. At about 12, he started going to Sinaloa to work picking tomatoes. He did that every year for a while, and when he was 16, on a trip there, he met my grandma, Elisa Aguilar Cepeda, and she says he was very direct and very interested in her from the beginning. Cuando él me conoció, fue y me dijo, tú vas a ser mi esposa, mi chaparrita. <laughs> He went up to her and said, you're going to be my wife, Chaparita. And she told him, you're crazy. And that Saturday, he sent a mariachi that played music from northern Mexico. 
Hechicera, tú lo juiste, me hechizaste el corazón. And that's my grandma singing Hechicera by Antonio Aguilar. Dime, pequeña hechicera, qué cosa me hiciste para que te quiera. After that, they married and had five kids together. And then shortly after that, they moved to Mexicali, which is a small town on the border of California and Mexico. And there he sold tacos. And his daughter, my mom, Monica, says some of her favorite memories are helping him cut the cabbage and tomatoes. I just remember he used to make like the best tacos, the best flour tortilla tacos with the best salsas. He made like really good spicy salsas. That was his thing. My grandma says my grandpa always had this bigger dream to move to the United States. He never went to school as a kid, and she says that he didn't want that for his kids. So in 1985, Papi Tomás took his wife and his kids through the desert to cross the border. La idea de que sus hijos tenían que criarse en Estados Unidos y que iban a hacer lo mejor. Gracias a Dios. He had the idea that his children had to grow up in the United States and that they were going to be the best there, she says. He was always proud of their accomplishments. And when their two oldest children graduated from university, she says he cried so hard. My mom Elicha says sometimes she felt like her kids loved their dad more than her because she had to be the strict one. But my mom remembers her dad being even more strict than her mom. Especially when he came from a long day from work and we will see the truck and we will see the truck and we will run home, make sure that house was clean and everything was nice and tidy and because uh, Papi Tomas was coming. He was coming home from the fields where he picked garlic, olives, and oranges, and really all the crops in the Central Valley. And he did that for 40 years. But he wanted his kids to strive for more. Uh, he would tell all of us, you better pay attention in school or this will be your future. Do well in school. And uh, I, I took it literally. I wanted to get straight A's because I did not like working in the fields. My papi Tomas's kids remember him as this tough love kind of dad, but that really changed when he became a grandfather. My mom had me at 20 years old, and she was a single mother, so many people told her she was making the wrong decision by keeping me, including my grandpa. But she was determined to prove him and everyone else wrong. She was going to be a successful single mom because her dad taught her to be hardworking and determined. So she started working at a bank. And now she works as a lending consultant. My grandpa would always say, a chambiar porque nacimos bonitos pero pobres, which means work hard because we were born good-looking but poor. And all in all, there were 15 of us grandchildren. My grandma says my grandpa would often count them. Se ponía a contarlos. <laughs> Se ponía a contarlos cada rato y cuántos son. So he started counting them, she says. Every few years, he'd say, how many are there now? And he'd name us, but not by our actual names, by the nicknames he'd give us. One of my cousins was Ravanito, which is Spanish for radish because he blushed easily. And another one was Nadador, which is swimmer in English because he was trying to swim in the tub at only six months old. And I was Moniquita Jr., or his Madi Yupi. When I was a kid, he'd call and he'd say, Adi Yupi, do you want me to pick you up from school today? In Spanish. And after class, I'd run out and I'd see him waiting for me in his pickup truck, wearing his jeans, 
button-up shirt, hat, and his signature mustache, which he dyed black regularly uh, while the rest of his hair turned gray. And uh, on one of those days, I remember we stopped at the gas station and he called out to a woman on the street. He had told her, be careful, immigration agents are driving around the neighborhood. He was always looking out for his undocumented community and for us grandkids. My grandpa had all of his grandchildren's birthdays memorized, and he'd call us every year on our birthday. Here's the last voicemail he left me on my birthday in 2020. Happy birthday to you, you to you. I could always count on my papito mas. He taught me what unconditional love is. He was the second father to all of us grandchildren. And he was even a father figure to his niece and nephew who didn't have a present father. When the pandemic started, my papi Tomas took it very seriously. He did have to go to work in the fields, though, but that's pretty much all he did. Uh, and then in late November, my mom Elicha contracted COVID from working as a housekeeper at the hospital. My papi Tomas took care of her. Then a week or so later, he contracted the virus, and so did my mom. My body was in a lot of pain. And all I can think of, I'm like, I hope that my dad is not in the same pain that I am going through. And the next day when we learned that he had passed away, it was painful and and it's still painful. He had been sick for a few days and my mom Alicia tried convincing him to go to the hospital, but he didn't want to die alone. My mom Alicia worked at the hospital, so she told him she would check on him, but he still said no. When he died, my mama Licha found him after working a night shift at the hospital. His kids and most of his grandkids showed up at the house shortly after hearing the news. But we were right parked right there outside the driveway. This is my cousin Melanie. I remember the things so vividly. I remember I remember my mom screaming really loud and just like Oh, no, 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 like, you're lying. Like, in Spanish, she was like, you're lying, you're lying. No, he's fine, he's fine. My papi Tomas passed away on December 13th, 2020. He died in his sleep on his side with his hands clasped together in front of him. For everyone, including my mom, the grief is still very real. It doesn't feel like it's real and it's, it's been a year and, and a month. You never want to go through that pain that that your parents are gone, especially someone that you care so much. A year before my grandpa died, I graduated college and got an internship in D.C. The day before I left, I went to visit him, and I told him how grateful I was for his sacrifices, for the values he instilled in my mom that she passed down to me, the values that allowed me to fly across the country to pursue my dream of becoming a reporter. We hugged and cried together. And later that day, my mom said he called her to tell her she did a good job raising me. I feel indebted to him and my mom for the sacrifices they made for me. I'm just happy I was able to tell him that before he passed away. 
For the California Report, I'm Adi Bolaños, Madi Yupi, or Moniquita Jr. in Madeira. If you've lost somebody you love to COVID here in California and you want to share their story in our tribute series, you can visit kqed.org slash lost to COVID. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director, and Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. Our team also includes Amanda Font and Izzy Bloom. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.